boils, rashes, mould, nocturnal emissions, periods. These are certainly the earthier pages of the Bible and are a far cry from the kind of spiritual guidance offered later on in the New Testament section of the book. However, the medical handbook seems to have temporarily closed and Leviticus now turns its attention to the holiest day of the Jewish year. This day is still kept sacred by millions of Jews today and sees believers attempting to make up for all the wrongdoings and other misdemeanors they have committed over the past year. This is the Day of Atonement, or in Hebrew, Yom Kippur, and it is the first time Aaron has overseen a major celebration since two of his sons were dramatically struck down outside the tabernacle. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, Episode 30, The Scapegoat. Did someone just say episode 30? That's almost 10 hours of podcast under our belts and there's still plenty of gas left in the tank. Thanks for sticking with us. I hope you've learned something or at the very least seen a side of the Bible that you didn't know existed before. This podcast is only possible thanks to the knowledge and expertise of numerous writers, thinkers, theologians and priests and I am in genuine debt to all of them. I'll pop their names in the show notes in case you're in need of further enlightenment. If you're new, this is the Bible, but considerably less holy. It's the story minus the preach, written by an advertising creative director, not a theology professor. And so on we go. Atonement needs to be made, and God is about to explain how to make it. The first atonement ceremony is officiated by the Israelites' original high priest, Aaron, in the tabernacle and becomes the blueprint for every one that has taken place ever since. In the light of what happened to Nadab and Abihu, God flags up another danger. Moses is to warn his brother that he can't simply enter the most holy place whenever he pleases. If he does this, he will die as God lives in the cloud above the ark. Before he even gets close to the Israelites' most sacred room, Aaron must sacrifice a bull as a sin offering to clear the decks of his own personal spiritual mess. He must offer up a ram as his standard burnt offering, and because the day is all about purity, he must wash himself before putting on his linen tunic and underwear, tying the sash and placing the turban on his head. On behalf of the entire community, Aaron must take two goats for a mass sin offering and a second ram for everyone's burnt offering. After the bull has been slaughtered, the goats to be brought to the entrance of the tent. Aaron is to cast lots, possibly with the help of the Urim and Thummim. Depending on how this particular cookie crumbles, one goat is to be sacrificed as a sin offering, while the other, the scapegoat, is presented to God before being set free into the wilderness. The Day of Atonement is such a special day in the calendar that no one other than Aaron is allowed on the tabernacle compound. After the Israelites' high priest has slaughtered the bull to remove his own sins, he is to fill a censer with burning coals from the altar of incense. Taking two handfuls of incense, probably in a cup held in his free hand, he must pass through the curtain to the most holy place and stand before the ark in what the Israelites believe is the presence of God. Here, he must add the incense to the fire in his censer, creating a fragrant smoke, a literal smokescreen between him and the ark that prevents him from seeing God and ensuring that he does not die. He must also flick some of the bull's blood at the ark seven times with his finger to cleanse it. 
Next, he is to slaughter the goat which takes the people's sins away and takes some of its blood with him behind the curtain to sprinkle at the ark. This is to cleanse the most holy place from the uncleanness caused by everyone's imperfect lives. The sense is that this sacred place is centrally located in the Israelite camp, but has been defiled by the people's ungodly behaviour and needs purifying. Aaron's annual intervention is allowing himself, his family and the whole community to purify themselves and make a fresh start with God. The rest of the tabernacle also needs to be cleansed by having blood sprinkled at it. Aaron is to take a mix of the bull and goat blood and dab some on the horns of the main altar before sprinkling the altar seven times to rid it of any contamination from Israel. The altar is now consecrated for another year. Once this is all done, Aaron must turn his attention to the surviving goat. He lays his hand on its head and transfers all the wrongdoing of the Israelites into the animal before packing it off into the wilderness. God tells Moses that the goat will take on all human sin and must be taken to a remote place before being released. As it is a goat that takes on all the evil of mankind, it's easy to see how medieval artists began seeing the devil as a goat-like creature. Aaron's next task is to remove his priestly clothing, possibly the ephod and turban, and change into his regular workwear before sacrificing the two rams, one as a burnt offering for himself and the other for everyone else, completing the atonement ceremony. As a final visual flourish, the highly flammable fat from the bull and the goat used to make the sin offering is burned on the fire. Cleaning up after the sacrifices is equally important. The man who released the goat in the wild must wash his clothes and bathe himself thoroughly before he is allowed back into the camp. The remains of the bull and goat are to be taken outside the camp and burned, and the man who disposes of them must wash his clothes and bathe in the same way as the goat wrangler. According to Leviticus, the Day of Atonement is ordered by God to take place on the tenth day of the seventh Jewish month of Tishrei, which is usually in either September or October. On this day, the Israelites and any foreign guests living among them are forbidden to work and must deny themselves, which suggests no food, drink or sex. It's a day of cleansing, prayer and inner reflection and is what God refers to as a lasting ordinance, which is why it is still celebrated by Jews today. The order of the day is one of purity and returning to a pristine state and Yom Kippur is such a holy day in the Jewish calendar that it is known as the Sabbath of Sabbaths. Christians believe that the blood spilt when Jesus is nailed to a Roman cross trumps any of the blood sprinkled by priests on the Ark of the Covenant and see this epoch-making event as a one-off that atones for all people for all time. Most Jews beg to differ and Yom Kippur remains an uplifting spiritual reboot for everyone who takes part. Blood is clearly seen by God as a vital force and so eating or drinking it is taboo. Shedding blood unnecessarily is also a definite no-no in Leviticus. There is a correct way to offer sacrifices and God warns Moses that anyone who makes theirs away from the tabernacle has simply slaughtered an animal illegally and should be cut off from the rest of the community. If priests don't get eyeballs on sacrifices, there is no guarantee they are taking place or being done properly. For this reason, any animal given up to God for a fellowship offering must be brought to the tabernacle to be killed and have its blood splashed and its fat burned appropriately. It seems that some Israelites are still sacrificing to the goat gods which they worshipped back in Egypt and God makes it clear that home sacrifices will not be condoned in Israel. 
He also reminds Moses of his mandate that no one should eat blood, and that anyone who does this faces being ostracised forever. Again, the message is that blood represents an animal's life, which is why it is splashed on the altar. The life of the sacrificed animal pays for the mistakes made in the life of the person offering the sacrifice. For this reason, all animals either farmed or hunted should have their blood drained, a practice known today as kosher. The Jewish food laws are called kashrut, which is where the word kosher comes from. The blood of hunted prey must be drained out, then covered in earth, and any animal that has been found killed or injured by wild animals is seen as unclean food. Anyone who eats it must wash their clothes and bathe themselves, and will remain ceremonially unclean until nightfall. If they don't do this, the ominous warning is that they will be held responsible. The message is clear. Blood is not food, and millions of Jews today still ensure that all the meat they eat is kosher. After he has explained what makes meat edible, God gives his people a comprehensive list of romantic pairings which he does not look kindly on. God wants the Israelites to know that things are going to be different under his rule. They are not to continue the Egyptian way of life, nor are they to involve themselves in Canaanite practices when they arrive in the promised land. Instead, they must obey his laws and keep their focus on living how he wants them to live. Leviticus then lists who may and may not sleep with one another. Much of the instruction on the subject of sexual liaisons is common sense, and the fact that some of it needs saying makes the mind boggle as to exactly who is hooking up with who in the Sinai desert. Any man wanting to sleep with his mother or sister is told in no uncertain terms that she is off limits. This rule makes sense. The health problems inherent with such a small gene pool can outweigh any romantic benefits. Stepmothers and stepsisters are also out of bounds, suggesting that sex with these people who aren't blood relations can also wreak havoc on a family, especially as the mother-in-law will probably still be married. The stepsister might be living under the same roof, and so is potentially easy to take advantage of, especially by an older half-brother, and the law protects her from this. Understandably, sex with grandchildren is also a no-no. Aunties are considered too close for a sexual relationship, and approaching your uncle's wife for a bunk-up is seen as dishonourable to him, an understatement even if the man has multiple wives and concubines. All in-laws are forbidden fruit as far as sexual relations go, and a man is not to hook up with a woman while he is also in a relationship with her daughter. Should that woman have granddaughters, these must not be seen as potential sexual conquests either. An older and more powerful man pursuing these women as sexual partners is described by the Bible as wickedness. Men are not allowed to take their wife's sister as a rival wife or to have sex with her while the original wife is still alive, a ruling which would have made life much easier for Jacob, Leah and Rachel had it been in place during the age of the patriarchs. Women on their periods are to be avoided at all times sexually and a neighbour's wife must not be seen as fair game. Controversially, men are to refrain from having sex with one another, as God finds this detestable, an abomination which, in this particular list of rules, sits in between sacrificing children to idols and bestiality. But more of that one later. Unusually, men are not forbidden to have sex with single women if they are already married, or to marry multiple women. Jews remained polygamous until a Roman law prohibited the practice in AD 393. 
Thus far, the rules have been aimed at men who are seen as the dominant partner, but when it comes to sex with animals, women are also seen as protagonists. A woman must not present herself to an animal for sex. It appears that in a culture where sex is seen as a bond between a man and wife, anything kinky that doesn't lead to the creation of children is seen as a perversion. God explains that the current inhabitants of Canaan have broken all these taboos, which is why he will use Israel to wipe them out. He describes the place as a defiled land that will vomit out its inhabitants and promises Israel that if it behaves in a similar fashion and fails to stick to God's rules, its people will be similarly jettisoned. God's expectation is that his people will behave differently to other cultures and that this behaviour will set them on a higher moral plane to everyone else. Anyone who feels that they might wish to ignore the rules is assured that they will be cut off from their people, not something that might appeal to even the lustiest Israelite living miles from home in the middle of a desert. The chapters of Leviticus that follow are filled with miscellaneous rules and the punishments for breaking them. Many seem out of kilter with modern life, and some seem simply arbitrary and have no apparent reason for being taboo. According to Leviticus, Moses is commissioned by God to gather the entire camp for a briefing. The top-line message is that they must be holy because God is holy. This means that they must deport themselves in a way that delineates them clearly from the Canaanite barbarians who currently inhabit the land into which he is sending them. Many of the laws in Leviticus are repetitions of ones in the book of Exodus. Parents must be respected, idols must not be worshipped, and the meat from fellowship offerings must be eaten within two days or the offering is considered null and void. This seems an odd place to talk about offerings, but the clue is in the connection to worshipping idols. It seems that the Israelites have largely abandoned their pagan religions and are devoting any slaughtered animal to God before eating it. However, this still falls short of God's expectations for what constitutes a bona fide fellowship offering, and he appears to want things done properly. There are reminders of laws that appear in the Ten Commandments. The Israelites are told not to lie, steal, swear falsely, deceive or defraud one another. Some laws protect the vulnerable. Israelites are forbidden to harvest to the edge of their fields, or to double back over a vineyard to pick any grapes that have been missed. This rule allows the poor and the migrants to take their share of what's left, and is one which Ruth and Naomi take advantage of later on in the Old Testament. Employers are barred from holding back the wages of a hired worker overnight, and meanness such as cursing people who can't hear, either through deafness or because they are absent, is roundly condemned, as is the practice of leading blind people into harm's way. Perverting justice or showing favouritism as a judge is out of the question. Israelites are forbidden to slander one another and must not do anything that puts another person in danger. The old should be stood up for by those stronger and more able, and they should be respected. No one may take advantage of or mistreat a foreigner living in Israel, as they must be treated the same as someone who was born there. Again, God reminds them that they were foreigners themselves while they lived in Egypt, and so foreigners should be loved as much as anyone. Fairness and honesty are paramount in these rules. Dishonest scales are a crime as they breach trust and rob people of what should be theirs. God reminds his people again that he brought them out of Egypt, the sense being that they owe it to him to behave themselves now that they are on the cusp of finally having a homeland of their own. Many people see the Bible as a love story. God loves the people who he created and designed them to love one another and him. 
It's not surprising then that he sets an indictment against anyone who hates another Israelite. For a largely unpoliced society to run smoothly, people need to be in control of their own morality. God tells them that they should call out one another when they see bad behaviour, as that ensures that they are not associated with whatever is going on. Revenge is frowned upon by God in Leviticus. Grudges are also off-limits, and for the first time, the people are told the mandate that prevails throughout the entire Bible. Love your neighbour as yourself. Otherwise known as the Golden Rule, love your neighbour has long been claimed by Christians as their own, but many other faiths and cultures hold this mantra dear to their hearts long before Jesus treads the roads of Galilee. First mentioned here in Leviticus, this doctrine begins life in the Bible as a Jewish rule, and its central thought is blindingly obvious. Don't be obnoxious to others. Love your neighbour appears in many iterations in both the Old and New Testaments. Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan in the Gospel of Luke underlines the reality that a person's neighbours might be people they don't like very much, but who still deserve respect and fair treatment. God may be speaking exclusively to Moses, but he expects his message to be shared with the rest of Israel. He peppers his speech with reminders that he is God, and that these are his laws, just to make sure that everyone knows that these aren't just human ideas. There is a divine hand and a grand plan behind them. Laws forbidding the weaving of two kinds of material into the same garment of cloth, planting multiple seeds in a field, or mating two kinds of animals seem arbitrary, but there may be some science behind this. If the Israelites are to keep themselves separate, maintaining the purity of cloth, seed and animal breeds is symbolic of that separation. Or it may be the case that mixing things up is a Canaanite or Egyptian practice and God wants to create some air between Israel and these two pagan cultures. Other pagan practices which God wants to end are eating meat that contains blood, engaging with divination or looking for omens, clipping the hair at the sides of the head, trimming the tip of the beard, or the bizarre act of cutting the body for the dead. This practice appears to be an act of self-mutilation or scarring carried out by Canaanites and which honours dead loved ones. So when Leviticus bans tattooing in the next breath, the sense is that the tattoos are for the same purpose rather than decoration as they more often are today. The cutting and tattooing might even be something done to the dead body rather than to the mourners. Ancients believe that cutting a corpse allows the spirit to escape, while tattooing the skin gives information to the gods about the deceased. Daughters are not to be sent off to serve as prostitutes at fertility shrines, as this is degrading for them, and God promises that if this happens, the whole country will be overrun by prostitution and will become a wicked place, far from the virtuous ideal he has planned. Mediums and others who convey messages to and from the dead are also seen as unwanted foreign imports. God sees these as a defiling influence on his people and wants Moses to remind them that he alone is God and as such is the only spirit who anyone should be consulting. In fact, Canaan is seen as so contaminated that any fruit tree planted in its filthy soil must wait three years before its fruit is considered pure enough. All fruit from year four is to be given to God as an act of gratitude, and finally the fifth harvest is for the owner to enjoy. God adds that by honouring him in this way, he will increase Israel's harvests and its people will thrive.
God clearly wants his people to be unique, or at the very least, visibly and behaviourally distinct from the people already living in Canaan. The rules seem arbitrary, but they all have one thing in common. They place God at their centre and his need to have a dedicated group of people close to him, a people apart, or to use the biblical word, holy. They are to look, behave and worship differently to any other people group in the ancient Near East. There will always be the ultra-Orthodox who still try and follow these rules to the letter and their views are no less valid for being so extreme. Others cherry-pick rules that are sympathetic to their own worldviews or prejudices. But many more liberal Jews, Christians and Muslims believe that the world has moved on and much of what fitted a nomadic group of Bronze Age wanderers in the Sinai Desert seems anachronistic in the 21st century West. No biblical laws are more contentious than the rules forbidding same-sex relationships and we'll be pulling up at that particular roadhouse next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please send any comments or feedback to contact at holybible.com. <laughs>